Welcome to Radio Skid Row. You're listening to Survival Guide with Joel and Lorna. Bringing you, bringing you all the best of your survival needs um, and taking you right through to 2pm every Friday afternoon. We um, are very excited. Well, not, I don't know if excited is the right word. I think it's... Um, we're jacked up. We've got some stuff to share. We've we, got some we've things got to say. We've got a lot of tea to spill. Exactly. Um, we've got a lot of receipts as well. About mm. 14 years, maybe, mm. we've been looking at receipts. So this episode that we're going to be diving into today is all about money. Money. All about how much money has been spent. We're calling this episode a black audit. Um, we're really talking about a black audit and what that looks like on a community level and how much money is actually breaching that community um, and how much money is being tied up into this industry that's been created um, that's, you know, pretty much parasitic, behaves very, it has very parasitic behaviours and it's actually sucking the life force from mm. that deadly, strong Aboriginal community that we come from, Redfern, Waterloo, the black heart of this nation, birthplace of self-determination as we know it, and Aboriginal community-controlled organisations and um, educational programs, black thought, black consciousness, the pride of being black was really encouraged in this community no matter what... um, what shade of black your skin had you know that's something that's always been a strength in our community Mm. um and that's very much responding to the dispossession and the genocide and 230 years of illegal occupation of our lands um over the show we've just been kind of we've been trying to bring you through and up to up to date with where 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 our heads are at and how we believe the narrative of this um, relationship to property, the relationship to land, the relationship to economics and the ways in which these things are manipulated and the ways our politicised bodies move through this space and how we have been tested on these communities from the get-go, from arrival of settler colonialism. We have been used as the testing ground and as the excuse to and the, um, the exclusion of the land to make money and to extract value from this place. And today's story, we're going to talk to you about the community that we have lived in and what we have experienced in the time since 2004 and what we believe is a counter-narrative or at least our own perception of what has happened in this community and has set in motion the sort of things that we are now talking that we are talking mm-hmm. about today. The, mm. the, the topic and the issue that brought Lorna and I together in the first place back in 2016, talking about Redfern Waterloo red redevelopment, but mm. when did when was Redfern's ship originally set sail? When when was this when was this decision made? And what are the key factors that have kind of come up? And what have we been able to glean from the public as well as community centred conversation mm. um, about these issues? And so we're looking at how the ways in which money has been used, the ways in which the way in which money has been used in and of itself to extract more value from this community but not actually embed any any program or any sort of sustainability into it. So, mm, Or invest that money back into the community um, and actually address the problems that we've been screaming about um, mm. for a very long time, you know, and, and the generations before have been screaming about. And literally one of the main justifications for uh, these great 
black pioneers mm, mm. of black thought um, built our community in the first place. Um, and I think, you know, it's really important to just bring it back to a lot of the misinformation that's been put out there. A lot of people don't realise all of the things that we have been doing um, and, uh, you know, just the money. Mm. A lot of people are really kind of, I guess, blindsided by any figure that has more than six digits. Mm. I am, like, we within the conversations we've been having. We don't you know, know what that means. I don't know what that means. I don't I don't know if that's billions or millions or it's liquid capital. Whatever, we don't understand what that is. We're poor and we're intergenerationally poor. Um, you know, these are the things that I... I believe um, a lot of, I think that the rest of Sydney really needs to hear and the rest mm. of this country really needs to hear. Exactly. Um, so, you know, we, I don't want to go too, divert too much from um, this whole stream of, of conversation that we've got and all the things that we've been uncovering. Um, but I just wanted to just mention, you know, the, the, the slave mentality that exists within our people um, you know, and I've I've found that I have issues with money. Like as soon as I get money, I will spend it and I will leverage that straight up because being a poor person, I actually have anxiety whenever I have it after struggling mm. for so long to get it. Um, you know, and I really think that that comes from being descendants of slaves but not actually being allowed to call what happened in this country slavery, um, you know, which is which is an interesting psychological sort of torment um, that I know a lot of a lot of our people are experiencing and especially a lot of poor people as well um, you know and I think that really has a lot to do with why anything with money kind of can go over the top of our heads or it's it's a different language it's white men's language because like episode two when we talked about Walang and black economics and erosion of black economics and neoliberalism we have no prior understanding of the way that white value systems use land and bodies. Exactly, and what we're trying to what we're trying to um, take you through this this episode, as well as throughout the whole of this series, is bring you up to scratch with what's kind of happening in this community as of now. And so, to start, we have to kind of we first have to start here, but then we have to go back, and mm-hmm. the result. The, the, the announcement of the redevelopment of Redfern Waterloo in 2015 was the result of a set of 12 years of manoeuvring, politicised stigmatisation, um, consolidation of government departments, the liquidation of them, the reconsolidation, and the manoeuvring in which there was the, the state government decided to acquire forcibly and then redistribute the wealth from selling off public land. And that starts in 2004 mm. with the, in the the establishment of the Redfern Waterloo Authority. Mm. Now, the Redfern Waterloo Authority was a particularly... Uh, it was a federal... It was a, it was, a, it was a state government authority that was established to have certain distinctive powers that that pulled it outside of the city councils mm-hmm. and what it was what it then gave it the power to do was to forcibly acquire sites within Redfern Waterloo and sell them for the government so, to, for capital so i think this story really starts on the 14th of february and it was um, yes when um a young man by the name of TJ Hickey uh was rammed by a police car 
um, by a paddy wagon and was impaled on a fence. Um, I, I'm actually lost for words at the thought of that fence still standing there when we think about how much money we've actually uncovered that has gone into this dispossession and this gentrification that's been happening, how much money has been invested into it, into this aggressive campaign, stigmatisation of, of black youth. Mm. Um, what triggered what triggered the rep from Waterloo Authority was a policy decision around what was conceived as antisocial behaviour mm, as a result. Which was a response to the community response to the murder of that young man. And I tried to avoid using words like riots because it really plays into the narrative of this stigmatisation that the media have really been aggressively um, conducting against the Redfern Waterloo community. If you go back and have a look at those images, those images are children. Those, those, those people that those um, police are armoured up and they're facing... Um, their children um, in those images from the Red Fern um, 2004. Yeah, um, these young men. These were young men standing up against what they thought was a was a corrupt and a violent police force that had been committing crimes of varying degrees of intensity and prejudiced. Well, we've been detailing it exactly. throughout the whole survival. We guide. spoke about this in our policeman um, police episode. That's mm. right. Um, and you know, th- the thing about what happened with TJ was that there was a huge campaign. TJ is not th- not the first person that this happened to, but is the first person to die from the result of this heavy, heavy-handed um, campaign that the police have been the hands of um, in the last fourteen years. Um, you know, there's been a lot um, of this sort of stuff happening in this community. I know people that are permanently disfigured, permanently um, affected by, um, you know, things that the police have done and I'm not sure if they've never had any compensation. I'm not sure if they've ever had any justice um, and, you know, it's just actually made it really easy for them to get away with with murder, with mm. murdering TJ, you know. The, the, no one has ever seen his bike No, um, that has been rammed that will literally, you know, be the evidence to show the force um, that he was hit by. Um, you know, all these things. That fence is still sitting there. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's been a cover-up um, and it's been used in federal parliament um, to pass these laws, to enact this body to supersede all of these local governments mm. under the guise of addressing antisocial behaviour. Well, it, which brings into questioning the fundamental issue of, so how does a, how does a government go about addressing issues of antisocial mm. behaviour within a community that they have deemed as being antisocial? Mm. So we're talking it, about the Redfern Waterloo Authority, the establishment mm, of the yep. Redfern Waterloo Authority, and what it's done and where it's come from. But exactly, how does how this is this is what we want to inspect, and we want to take you through this journey with us and having a look at these conversations because a red a, a property a property company essentially set up to address issues around antisocial behavior the first thing that it the first thing that it instates as it does this is building is developing built environment plans Mm. so there is there is as a result of the community community demonstrations in 2004 there is a mobilization to this within the police force a heightening of vigilance towards the community but also 
the Redfern Waterloo Authority acting as a um, surveying company. So mm. in, there's there's no community programs, there's no community um, established forums for a conversation mm. about what happened. Mm. Consultation prior to all of this as well. Yes, there is a set of decisions being made because of the government's um, idea that it needed to activate the inter- the um, centre of the city and engage uh, development along the railway corridors. Mm. So this this, cam- this campaign as well, um, you know, to get rid of this local cam- uh, community has been in effect for a very long time um, and I believe, you know, uh, we've mentioned a little bit, um, uh, but in 2000 with the Olympic Games and we had lots of international visitors, I think that this was when these plans were really thought of before they, um, you know, before the death of TJ Hickey, um, it's just such a, it's just such a crime against humanity that the death of this young person has been used to uh, redevelop the the area. So, to, so how do we, so how do we address, how do we address structural mm. um, issues within a community around the relationship towards violence and the police? Oh, of course, we're going to sell land. Mm. So. We want to kind of take it from this point. And in 2006, um, two years after the establishment of the Redfern Waterloo Authority, the strategy for revitalising Redfern Waterloo and the built environment plan were released for the community, encouraging jobs and enterprise through the development of strategic sites. One of these strategic sites was the Australian, what was to be deemed the Australian Technology Park, which was originally the... um, yeah, um, it was Paddy's Markets back in the nineties. It was a, uh, it was a, uh, it was an industrial, works. it was an industrial site it's, and carriage yeah, yeah. works Locom- that was established. Yeah, locomotive um, workshops yeah. where the trains um, had been maintained, mm. um, the train lines were maintained, um, and of course, you know, the industry and the whole Australian um, industry really kind of. Um, how can I say this? Uh, Redfern has had a huge part to play in the growth of the rest of the nation with, you know, the first train station to be opened was in Redfern, which linked to Parramatta, to, which linked down the south coast, which meant that that capital, that, that stolen capital was moved, um, you know, throughout the colonies and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. And just to put that into the context, how important that site is to the rest of this country, not just to this local community. Yes, as a business, it operated um, first and foremost, it offered that as well as Carriage Works offered jobs to uh, to entry level labourers, people who were not able to access different lines of work, class. which is the working class, which built into a very strong and established Indigenous community mm-hmm. surrounding Redfern and Waterloo. Okay. So there's this cultural tie, there's this historical tie to the community, to these spaces, mm-hmm. and the government decides what it needs to do to address issues around violence and and um, antisocial behaviour is to make a decision about how it's going to sell this by partnering with developers, um, Mervac and Meriton both very well known for their um, ability to address and deal with older um, industrial sites that have been left in willful neglect. We've spoken about that um, in past episodes. I'm going to take it forward. There was... So in 2007, the Redfern Waterloo Authority um, first announced one of the first sites of the Australian Technology mm-hmm. Park, which is 11 square... 11 thousand square meter research facility a military research facility i believe mm-hmm. um at the price of 20 at uh, the price of 47 million dollars um in the next year the announcement of green square 
another station along this railway corridor, the the announcement of a one point seven billion green square town centre redevelopment, another industrial site along this along this this way. No insight or no no conversation around how in which these activations or these revitalizations would actually benefit the community, apart from the fact that they had made certain agreements to employ Indigenous people in the process. Mm. Now, I myself was in school at this time, but um, Lorna, you have had some experience yeah. working in, in this and you had some first-hand experience engaging with these programs mm. and... I think it's really interesting and a really great opportunity that you personally here have been able to experience those things. Cause what was what was your experience in first being engaged to be a part of this program? So um, my 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 experience with um, working with the ATB and working on that site and being a part of these um, recruitment drives after they've kind of set in stone all of these plans and, you know, kind of scurried around realising that they don't have any of these um, prospective Aboriginal employees, um, even though all of the jobs were supposed to come from um, the local community, they were supposed to be filled with people like myself. Um, so long story short, how I come into this whole story is because of this experience, um, straight out of high school, um, I would have gotten this job in 2006. I think I finished high school in 2005, um, or maybe, uh, maybe 2006. I'm a little bit, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little while away, um, uh, but around that time I finished school. Um, I had got into university at UCID. Um, apparently, I kind of didn't fit the description of how they expected um, or what they wanted in a student and was kind of, you know, that I that thing was put on the back burner for a little bit. I was really depressed, really didn't know what to do at that time. I really needed something um, positive um, for myself after going through all these things, losing friends, um, you know, I... I I, I knew um, TJ, um, you know, it really affected our whole community. Um, there really wasn't much hope around that time um, and that was the general feel um, for me and a lot of my friends. Um, I was offered, uh, I was asked to come and have a meeting with my local uh, careers advisor, with my school careers advisor, um, and she just sat me down and she was just like, you know, there's this great opportunity that's happening at the moment at, um, at the technology park. Um, and I, don't, I can't even remember if it was even called that at that time. Um, I, we always referred to it as like, um, you know, where, where Paddy's were, uh, was and um, that sort of stuff, or Paddy's markets and um, the train, uh, like, you know, the factory sort of thing. It was a place um, that a lot of us kids like there's not many open spaces right growing up so these kind of places were the places that we explored as kids these are the places um that literally um you know we didn't have much um space to play in so these were the places that we explored um when we got out of our parents eye, um eyesight um you know, so to know that that was being done up, there was a lot of excitement around it. There was a lot of money being invested into it. There was a huge recruitment drive to try and get Aboriginal people to face these things and be the kind of face to represent 
how well they were engaging with community. Um, so I was offered a job, um, a traineeship. Um, and an internship I, or a job? It was, it was a traineeship. So it wasn't, it was an internship, right? So it wasn't really a job. It was, it was pretty much, it was pretty much slave labor. They had me doing a lot of work there that, um, I didn't have qualifications to do. I was pretty much doing a secretarial role, um, on site. Um, and were you paid? I, I was paid around $16 an hour, I think, um, you know. I think um, just it, was for just inflation. A, it was just a couple of dollars um, more than my salary at McDonald's. Um, and that was my first job. This is my second job in um, not counting all those little community things that we did and, um, you know, stuff that we did volunteer as well, which were tours, you know, putting on days for the women in the community, celebrating them, fundraisers so that we could go do things, you know, this is my second official job and I thought it was great because I was earning a bit of cash. Little did I know. Well, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't support myself with that money, um, you know, and I remember, I remember it being a bit of a struggle, but, you know, at that age, I was really excited to have my own money at that time, right? Um, anyway, I, after, after a while working there, I started noticing um, that, I, I got a lot of issues with that job, of course. I started noticing that um, I was the only person from my community actually working down there. And I thought, wow, this is a pretty shit recruitment drive because I'm looking around for other black faces because everyone's looking at me like a curiosity, you know, like everyone's asking all of those really inappropriate questions. It was a really misogynistic kind of environment. You know, it's a work site. It was a ticker box it position was, as well. But it was a work site as well. Mm. And I was eight, I was a young woman. I wasn't even an adult. I was 17 years of age, um, you know, working with grown men. Um, uh, I was in an office, but again, you know, all of these men, they made it a point to come up and suss me out and things like that like it was it wasn't it wasn't really a safe space um you know there's a lot of lot of really terrible comments that were made about my race and about my gender and about my physical appearance um and they had me working and doing a lot of stuff that they should never have done like architectural plans and stuff like that you know that people study four five how many years you've been studying joel uh, four years um, doing this sort of stuff, you know, they just chucked me right in and expected, um, well, that's it. You know, there was no training, there was no guidance, there was no kind of um, engagement from the training company as well. It wasn't really a, pl- a was plan really... from their perspective to yeah. actually make this a and sustainable expressed, position. And I had expressed my concerns with that and that, you know, I was just like, well, the next person that's going to come into this position, what is exactly is going to happen? Because I'm okay with not having a job after this traineeship, after you've pretty much just worked me um, for $16 an hour. Um, You know, I wanted to go to uni, so I was happy with that. Um, And then I really realised that how much they were kind of using um, these recruitment drive to justify that they were engaging with the local Aboriginal community. Oh, sorry. Um, justify that they were engaging with the local Aboriginal community um, as well as creating jobs, as well as, um, you know, all of these things that they said that they were doing. Um, they were actually bringing people from other areas, Aboriginal people, to um, meet these requirements and, and um, then those people had no places to stay. So then it made me uh, it made more work for me because then I would actually have to try and find 
um, places for these people to stay because, you know, there was a young family literally camped at the front of the site in their car and they we got in trouble because they were coming onto site using the um, facilities there. What's interesting as well, when you have these large-scale government redevelopments and an, uh, and an agenda addressed towards attaining a certain percentage of Indigenous staff and Indigenous labour in terms of the entire worksite, is that there is a sort of a secondary economy that builds up out of this where businesses are established as Indigenous um, recruitment um, organizations or labor hire organizations and they themselves are very rarely established from inside of the community themselves it's usually a capitalist out out kind of um out of the community ideal of like oh well look there's a there's a corner of the market that i can infiltrate and you see that what establishes is a set of different a bunch of little satellite kind of industries of indigenous hiring and indigenous practice um for commercial jobs which works to a certain extent but it's also can be incredibly exploitative well there was it, it created a lot more social problems in my community than you know what i think they ever and that's the thing right i think they don't ever care i don't think they ever really think about these things and what they look like right we're only ever just used in this whole sort of thing so you being used as to tick a box as a position was quite evident in, in what was going on for Pretty you. much. There was no permanent jobs. There's still no permanent Aboriginal identified positions still down there at that space. If there is, somebody please ring us up mm. and let us know. The number is 9550-9552. Correct Radio us, Skid Row. please. You know, this is, this is kind of the this thing. This is a call out. This is, you know, the stuff that we are really trying to put on the table for our listeners to kind of connect these dots because it's taken experiences has taken research has taken you know a lot of things that i myself um it hasn't never it's never sat well and that's because it doesn't quite add up how do all of these things address the social problems within this community and this and to tell you the truth there weren't really social problems there was um you know uh, there was over-policing of the community that led to the death of that young person. It was stereotypical profiling of Aboriginal children. It was literally being looked at as a threat by grown men. Mm. Um, even as a child, you know, mm. we're treated... Um, we're not treated like children. Um, and this is kind of... This is kind of the point, um, you know, and this is kind of the area that I think really should have been addressed in all of this and still is not being addressed in all of this. So, you know, that job down there, the ATP, um, it created more problems. Um, you know, it started arguments because people started realising that, hey, these were jobs for us, but they're being filled by someone from Kempsey or someone from, you know, um, Nara who now has to come up here and... Um, you know, find a house and a place. So then that's another house that should go to someone from this community as well that, you know, will go to someone from so outside you of have, the community for a temporary basis. You know? So what you have is a program that was first established and looks good on paper because you're ticking boxes about Indigenous employment, but it actually creates a issue within the community itself, which is quite fracturing and further perpetuates certain ideas about that community that enable more extraction and more regulation around indigenous issues and around the around the city so when that when the when the increase of these antisocial um in ideas when that's the mandate from the red, red from waterloo mm -hmm. authority perpetuates and, and, and allows it, it, it attains leverage for the red from waterloo authority to quickly 
forcibly acquire and sell off more land. Mm. So we see we, what we see is the Rachel Foster Hospital site mm-hmm. being 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 sold off for mm. about seventy million dollars. When was that? When was that sold? Sorry, the re, the Rachel it, Foster. Do you know the date? I'm just was, interested, just because that's still sitting. It's still sitting there, right? It's been it's been bought a few years ago, and it's still sitting there. Um, it was bought. It was bought ten years ago. In fact, it, I think. You, I think it was. You know what I mean? It's been. It's. It's a. De- it's been seen as a derelict site for a very long time. Well, it's this willful neglect. It's this. It's the way in which. But even after they of, bought it, right? Absolutely. But yeah. it's, it's. It's the speculation. It's the market. That's how mm. it operates. The, the developer will leave it until it becomes economically viable to do so. Mm. It no longer becomes. Um, an idea of property as um, an understanding or housing even as a verb, mm. it becomes a commodity. And for all those, um, you know, people that really var- value Australian heritage too, Rachel's site, Rachel Foster Hospital site sat on the former site of Dr Redfern and his property. So, you know, it's said that a lot of the trees that um, are in the front sort of courtyard sort of thing, they have been there since before 1788 even before um, white people um, were given those allotments of stolen land. Um, you know, so th- th- that area is a very contested site. It's a very well-known site. It's a very visible site as well. Um, and then we've... So there's been nothing um, talked about about the Rachel Hoster- Foster Hospital building since then. Um, we've got the... The Australian Technology Park, forty-seven million gone into that. Um, we've got trying to just keep tabs of the money, watching the money and where it's going and where it's not going um, after stating for so long what we needed. Um, we've also got two thousand and eight. We were up to, I think, is that right? Well, we're moving over to two thousand and nine, where we see. The the deal made between the um, Redfern Waterloo Authority and the ILC to turn the Redfern Public School into a develop that into a site in partnership with the YMCA, which becomes the um, the NCIE, mm-hmm. um, the National Centre for Indigenous Excellence, mm. um, and it's not quite sure what excellence actually means um, and what their what excellence actually means within a, a business model and how, you know, what well, does that public, look like in the community? Public land that's serviced the need of education and, and housed a huge amount of indig- of the Indigenous population in terms of schooling was turned over um, to be developed by a non-Indigenous company, the YMCA, mm. to create something which operates essentially as, you know, and a community a, service. They've and done a really similar thing that, uh, to what they, they did with the ATP. They filled it with black faces. Um, you know, you have black faces at the counters and stuff like that and that's how they kind of um, get away with this or that's kind of how they're using this thing to get into their local community. Mm. So essentially, I mean, we've kind of run a little a little bit longer on this first chat, this first stage, because it's really important for you to understand sort of what was at stake and sort of what the climate was like coming out of 2004 and the establishment of the Red, Red Firm Waterloo Authority is this political leveraging of the stigmatisation of Indigenous youth, as well as using political, um, p- political moments such as the community demonstration or the riots 
um, to leverage an idea around antisocial behaviour that could be fixed through residential development, which I mean, and property development and large-scale sell-off, which, like we stated, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but it's what was politically manoeuvred at the time by the people in power. And we'll let you know that was the Labor Party at the time that had made the decision to do these things and to sell this. Mm. Um, I think it's just important to give that context too because we've been detailing it Mm. the whole series. Yes. Um, But we've yet to go into this detail. And so there's further development within the Australian Technology Park with the the building of the the Channel 7 um, office building and studios. It came to a cost of $123 million to build that site. That's the sell-off of that land Mm. that the government made. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a lot of arguments about that as well, I remember, when it was happening um, from the community. There was a big pushback. There was campaigns. Um, but, you know, to no avail. Redevelopment of the Redfern RSL, those sales of the, 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 the Gibbon Street car park site, both sites coming to $35 million. Wow. That's coming into the community. We have essentially what we're trying to do here is we're trying to build a tally for us to engage with what we want to call this black audit. Okay, so sorry, I had um, for our listeners, if they really um, needed to hear what an audit was, um, a compliance audit is an examination of the policies and procedures of an entity or department to see if it is in compliance with internal or regulatory standards. So when we talk about a black audit, it's always about coming back to the black community and what that means. Construction audit, this is an analyst of the costs incurred for a specific construction project. This specific construction project we're talking about has spanned 14 years. Um, Financial audit, analysis of the fairness of the information contained within the entity's financial statements. How hard was it to dig up all this stuff, Joel? It's pretty damn hard. And we're we're not accountants as well. This is exactly what we're trying to say. We're trying to we're trying to give you what we can gleam as community members, what we understand to be what the government made in this seven year process: extracting, consolidating, forcibly acquiring land, public land, and selling it to keep the government afloat. Mm. Yeah, we're detailing our case for a black audit here, exactly. which needs to go further and which needs to have the full support of this community. And everybody needs to start really thinking about their positions in this. We have an information system audit. This involves a review of the controls over software development, data processing, access. Interesting, right? So literally a black audit is um, you know, how all of this money comes back into the black community. Um, it's an investigation into how much money has been invested in um, displacing this community and how much money needs to be divested into the community properly. Um, and that's kind of what we're, what we're working on. But this is the thing, right, is we've been working on this for two weeks now, just kind of trying to go back and read everything and... It's been hectic. If the, if the Redfern Waterloo Authority was established to attain certain goals for the community in terms of dealing with antisocial behaviour, which is for, meant to be for the community's benefit, um, where has this total of $300 million that, w- that the government made over this seven-year period in, through this forceful acquisition and sale of public land how much of that money has entered back into this community? Mm. How much have we seen this develop? Capacity for our community members, our, our children, our children's services, our health services, our legal services. I have a, one piece of documentation saying that the Redfern Waterloo Authority had had 
congratulated itself through award, through the awarding of community grants over the seven year period of a million dollars. That's one. That's one million dollars from the three hundred that it raised. This is the stakes that we're at at this moment, and this is only the first chapter of this story. We're trying to give you this detailed narrative of where we think the government made its decisions about this community and when it started to detail and plan the demise of the black centre of this country. Mm, maybe we should go to a break. We're um, going to cut to some music. And we'll... I've, I've lost track of our tally at the moment, so we're going to come back with our tally and we're going to keep going and digging up this money. Busy. We'll cut to some music. You've been listening to Survival Guide 88.9 FM, Radio Skid Row. Keep it locked. Watching the money, how much money has been spent doing the tally, how much money has been wasted in the last 14 years hmm. on developing and gentrifying Redfern Waterloo area. Yes. We are currently doing a stock take and a re-reading of the past documents submitted by the Redfern Waterloo Authority at its consolidation. In 2011, the Redfern Waterloo Authority was disbanded or liquidated and, and, and consolidated into what became the Sydney Metro Development Authority. Mm. And at the consequence of its um, dissolution and its consolidation, it released a statement um, listing its achievements and listing the things that it had done within so the community. So I just wanted to bring it back. So they had this huge kind of drive um about how what they were doing there was all this media stuff i unfortunately was used as the face of of um the atp's employment recruitment drive with the aboriginal community um without kind of knowing what that was all really about as a young person um (coughs) sorry we've um so I've just lost the plot again. We were talking about all that sort of stuff um, with the RWA and it was huge and it was promoted and then the consolidation of it all was very quiet mm. in 2011. Mm. Exactly. There was a, through the through its set, its set goals and its achievements, 
at, at, its, at its establishment was to combat and to deal with revitalizing Redfern and Waterloo and dealing with antisocial behavior and all these other issues. And instead of saying that, instead of at the, at the end of its consolidation when it became a, another beast, another um, large authority with power to develop and acquire land, which became the Sydney Metro Development Authority, it had not achieved those goals. But it had listed a few things that it that it had that it was very proud of kind of achieving. One of which was the establishment of the Everly Markets, which you know, that's fine. Um, that's but, nice. That's nice. That's nice for all these new. That's lovely... nice for all these new lovely tenants who yeah. have moved into all these places that they've sold off and mm-hmm. that can afford um, uh, all of these. What is it? Um, organic purchases that will be mm. purchased at uh, these markets mm. and things like that because you know even all that stuff it ain't for poor poor people um all of those organic produce coffee beans what was that first phrase from our first episode your white your, la- your flat white has a black history it's exactly um how i think about those markets right now so um so i find it funny that a business right and i think that aboriginal businesses are so scrutinized um, and again, this is kind of where I'm coming from with all the qualifications that I had and stuff that I studied, which was community management and adult education. Um, if a business sets out in their mission statement to do this, this, this and this, and within a certain time hasn't achieved those outcomes, there needs to be an audit then. Mm. So the audit that we're doing now is seven years kind of overdue. Yeah. It's more like 14 years overdue mm. and probably 230 years overdue. Mm. Mm. What have you extracted from this land over the over the course of settlement, you know? And this is comes back to our kind of conversation around the economics of neoliberalism, you know, the, the leveraging and the using of issues to re-regulate economic systems, um, creating political leverage out of the dialogue and the discourse around antisocial behaviour and stigmatised communities dealing with drugs and violence and other issues, over poli- which the result, I mean, it was the result of over-policing, but the, the, the way in which the government seemed to want to address these things is by re-regulating the way in which land could be granted and captured and, 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 and forcibly acquired and then reselling that land mm. for the profit of the government to then direct how they would like. Mm. Um, so there's been all this stigmatisation and all these things that colonialism has done to mm. us, but no, nothing really invested in any kind of training around um, colonial PTSD, um, deaths in custody, trauma training, um, any kind of community healing and workshops and stuff like that, which is kind of how you address issues like antisocial behaviour and, can, um, you know, and if this was a small business, it would have been shut down and audit would have been done a long time ago and they wouldn't have been allowed to conduct further business unless they could show that they can achieve outcomes that they set out. Exactly, so, and that's what we're trying to that's what we're trying to claim here is what yeah. exactly was achieved and what exactly was being and what what was at stake and what was lost and what actually was gained by the government. And I think mm-hmm. we're kind of trying to make that very apparent that it was much more a conversation about the force acquisition and the redistribution of wealth to mm. the top, to the government, to developers, than it was ever about these issues around social in- cohesion or antisocial behaviour. It is the government policy implemented to enforce gentrify and gentrification. Mm. Um, 
So at the top of the last, at the last segment, we kind of rounded off some figures to give you an understanding of the total of which was $300 million that the government um, had publicly disclosed that they had made through the selling of public land. Mm-hmm. Um, selling off stolen land again. Exactly. Stuff that they have no right to. But I think what's interesting is to look at some of the other key points that they had published at the kind of consolidation of the Redfern Waterloo Authority, one of them being the implementation of Phase 1 and 2 of the Human Services Plan. Um, phase 1 and focused on improving health services, services to Aboriginal people, youth services, alcohol and mental health issues. I would like to know in more detail where this evidence is for these improvements. Mm. Well, I know for a fact that, you know, um, they created a bit of competition with services by establishing a community health service right next door to the AMS that's been servicing this community for the past 40 years. And that has been established in this community specifically tailored to the needs of the Aboriginal community. So these people are actually trying to create competition for these services and actually trying to get rid of these Aboriginal services but actually saying that they're improving those services, right? Is, that what, if the, is this what, what I'm hearing? Like, is this right? It seems like it, you know? And this seems like to be the, the, the way that the game is played is it's a numbers game where you can skew, the, you know, you cook the books and you push these numbers in different directions. So improvements are more seen as decreases in numbers, right? Well, and that's that can it. Be... That number's gone from 35,000 uh, residents in the 60s to 300 today in 2018. Mm. And this is what this gentrification looks like. So now we're really chasing that blood money. Mm. How much? Um, You know, and what's the toll at now? Where are we at? We're still trying to go through it. And this is, you know, this is kind of what we're talking about. This This is hectic work and it's hard for poor people to even fathom these numbers. I, I am. I'm thinking about. I, I I think about all this stuff. How much could this? How many families this stuff could feed? Mm. How many families are starving? How many families have been starving within this time, while everybody grows fat on stolen land? That was justified and given away by you know the death of a young person, which has further been used to stigmatize the future of this community. Mm. Um, pretty much, um, you know, um, where's the tally? Where are we at? Improved perception of Aboriginal Waterloo by the wider community. They've improved the perception by just getting rid of the community, right? Mm. And trying to replace it with white, wealthy, attractive faces. Because the black ones ain't apparently, according to these private investors, with those famous comments of getting rid of all the black faces from the area. Yes, that was Daycorp, the development of the TNT buildings That above. are still there, taken up sunlight. Exactly, exactly. Um, I think I think it's important to kind of take from this stage that this was this was a period in time when a, a new government had come into power over over the federal, um, a, a new liberal government had come into power, and with the work that had already been set in place by the Labor government and the and the Redfern Waterloo Authority, decided to broaden the scope at which the 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 
broaden the scope at which they could develop um, parts of Sydney and redirect the profits to developers and themselves while also changing the entire makeup and kind of mm. the entire idea of these communities through from 2011 when the Sydney Metropolitan Development Authority was established up until 2014 when it was then again rebranded into another another body you see this kind of this this game that keeps being played where there is a essentially a, a, a development company that started off as an authority which has a certain kind of connotation to the way in which it can have certain powers that might be used for per- for, for, for good. You see it evolve over this time from one a Redfern Waterloo Authority into a Sydney Metro Development Authority. So it's much more centred around transport, becomes an idea wow. around the way. So it first starts from the idea of sort of a social benefit issue to then becoming a metro... A, a metro development authority, which is mm. much more con- concerned around transport, much more concerned about density development and allowing mm. people access into the city. And I, so, I wonder if that is a Liberal Labor tactic, um, government tactic, because I'm just really thinking about 1938 and when those people that were involved in the Day of Mourning, Jack Patton and all that sort of stuff, and they lobbied the Prime Minister, um, you know, with their demands um, and their 10-point plan, which was then appropriated by white people and used against us again, right? I'm just thinking about every time Aboriginal people have pushed and have some momentum, white people in the government are always like, but this is the greater good. This is more important. And back then there was world wars happening, which, you know, a lot of those same Aboriginal people that had gained that momentum and were finally seen, um, you know, by the Prime Minister and heard um, their demands, they were then sent off to those wars. Um, You know, uh, what I'm trying to kind of say is any time that these white people start listening to us, we're always kind of dismissed and told, but hold on a minute here, there's a greater good, There's there's a bigger thing that you're not that important. Your lives aren't that important. We have to shift focus because this is more important. And I think that, you know, there's been a really, um, it's, it's, a, it's a connecting thread in amongst all this and in the narrative as well. Definitely, definitely. So you see, you, what, what we're seeing is we're seeing a platform that was originally established in the guise of being directed towards social benefits. It then morphs into something that is much more directed to kind of key growth indicators that is directed by the Liberal government, which has a different understanding and a different perception on what it needs to do. So it engages as the Sydney Metropolitan Development Authority in what became known as the Built Environment Plan and um, the Urban Renewal Studies. Mm, which All this stuff just makes my eye twitch. Because mm. we like, hear this all the yeah, time in Redfern yeah. and Waterloo at the moment. This is we are now. No, it's not horror. We are now existing at, at the end of this result, and this is kind of what we're trying to do here: is talk you through this story. So, when you see a, a government with a set of ideals directed towards uh, home ownership, directed towards big business, directed towards dissolving regulations around um, the kind of the social provision you see a shift in what becomes the incentive of a built environment plan from an idea about social benefit to actually let's problematize public housing. Public housing no longer becomes the thing that a Labor government at a certain time probably wouldn't think mm. about getting rid of. Mm. It then develops into a, into a discourse from the Liberal government 
off the back of what was established as the Redfern Waterloo Authority into a larger mm. metro mm. significant precinct idea mm. where they go, oh, well, maybe the best way to deal with this is to actually sell this land as well. We've just learnt from the Labor <laughs> government that we can oh that God. we can take this bit of land and we can take this bit of land and we can take this bit of land and if we give this many, if we make it look like this much land is going to this and make it look like this much land is going to that. So pretty much they got li- liberal or Labors, where Aboriginal people are always fucked. Mm. Under a colonial system, it is our people that are always fucked. Mm. Um, and just to bring it back to that, you know, because everybody thinks... Each time there's an election and each time these people start scurrying around to try and fucking make up for all the bad shit they've done, you know, they're always going to play political football with our lives. Um, so you see, <sighs> you, see a di- you, see, you see a dialogue that is, starts from an, from an idea of trying to create money for the community or create money for the government. I don't think there was ever looking to make money for the, for the community. I think what's a really interesting detail that I think really highlights this as one of the key kind of discursive and really obvious shifts in thinking as you see the Redfern Waterloo Authority but change from a Labor-established authority into a Liberal-established Sydney Metropolitan Development Authority is all of the agreements and the contracts for Indigenous employment that were held Mm. through the Redfern Waterloo Authority are dissolved as the city metropolitan development authority come into comes into being mm, i'm just really interested to see that the metropolitan local aboriginal land council is not actually a part of or ha- it hasn't been mentioned in any of these plans um and i've noticed that they've been very quiet in the last 14 years these people are the only literal legal um organization legal body that have the charge of of maintaining and um, managing land for the local community. So I'm really interested to see that in amongst all of these shift of, of plans with, you know, the focus being shifted to the greater Sydney metropolitan area, that the met- the local metropolitan, local Aboriginal Land Council has not been very vocal. Exactly. So we see, we see a shift, we see a shift of these ideas move into a set of studies around the ways in which people can gain access to these areas. I think the consultants engaged for the built environment um, plan number two are very telling around the ideas of what was actually being incentivized by the government's understanding or what the, the Sydney Metropolitan Development Authority had in mind for the community, where we have ACOM, a engineering company mostly dealing in city infrastructure, transport, other things, doing the sustainable servicing and supporting infrastructure capacity study. Well, Let's have... not forget that all this money has been spent on putting down a light rail system mm. that the Sydney Sydney Council had only just finished digging up. Um, you know, we did have a light rail system back in the 60s mm. and the 50s and it was literally the only way that um, Aboriginal people from La Perouse and Redfern and Waterloo could you know, um, engage in both communities because they had a direct rail line out there. They've gotten rid of that rail line. It makes it, you know, that community a little bit more isolated in those coming times. But we often hear um, stories, you know, from um, great aunties, um, you know, aunties that tell us about discos and, you know, parties and going across the ferries and being able to go and watch displays of culture down there at LARPA, you know, because there's always been that connection between Mm. our Aboriginal communities. Exactly. And um, that's how long ago 
you know, that light rail was. So um, what we're also, and so what we're trying to embed in here is what was originally started as a conversation, and I keep saying this, but what was originally triggered by a moment of over-policing and death in pursuit evolves and is politically manoeuvred and manipulated by two successive governments mm-hmm. to, a, to become a conversation about access and transport because the way in which the Liberal government understood that it could make a claim on public land is if it had a if it had a legitimate stake in developing a metro station mm. within the area. I just um, want to remind people too about the TJ Hickey case is that it came out that you know Redfern police had used footage of a bag snatch earlier on um, that day um, to try and justify their aggressive uh, policing of the area at that time. Um, basically. You know, this young person's death has been used as a justification for this when back then it was apparent that he had been he had been targeted falsely because he didn't even fit the description of the person that they were looking for from the release of that video. So, you know, I think it just really needs to be said. As well as you can understand the um, the what what is now evident within our current political system, where we see a liberal government hell bent on dissolving the welfare state, you can kind of see when you do this historical kind of uh, investigation on the ways in which the authorities have shifted and developed over the past fourteen years in this community that you see a undermining of the idea of provision of public housing and then a manoeuvring and a way of legitimising the, the the opportunity to sell the land. And all of it has come from the pretty much the false justification and murder of a young person and a, a community in grieving that has never had any kind of resources be able to facilitate any kind of community healing. And that's what we've been talking about throughout our whole series as well, which is why it's so important to state this case and how important it is for people to realise how much our lives are worth. Brings us to... Um it brings us to a point now where I think we're going to close off for another segment and talk about how the Sydney Metropolitan Development Authority, which was garnered and directed by the Liberal government, evolved into what is now the behemoth, the monster that is urban growth. And we will talk yeah. about that in the next segment. We're going to cut to some music. We'll be back. You've been listening to locked. Survival Guide. Stores. You tell me who flopped, who copped the blue drop, who juice got blocked, who mostly goes down to the blue drop. The same old pimp, mace, you know ain't nothing changed but my limp. Can't stop till I see my name on a blimp. Guarantee me yourselves, call a level up. You don't believe in Harlem world, nigga, double up. We don't play around, it's a bet, lay it down. Niggas didn't know me 91, bet they know me now. I'm the young Harlem nigga with the Goldie sound. Can't no PG, niggas hold me down. Cooler, school me to the game, now I know my duty. Stay humble, stay low, blow like hootie. True pimp, niggas, spin no dough on the booty. And when you yell, there go mace, there go your cutie. Welcome back to Radio Skid Row. 
88.9 FM, you're listening to Joel and Lorna on Survival Guide. Taking you right through to 2 p.m. every Friday. On this Friday, we are doing a black audit or focusing on Redfern, Waterloo area and how much money has been invested in this wave of gentrification that we're experiencing right now. Mm. Exactly. So we're talking in the stages we want to jump through um, some kind of episodes that we believe are kind of pertinent since the, since 2004 and the establishment of the Redfern Waterloo Authority. We're now up to coming pretty close up to date with our own experiences of what's going on in Redfern and Waterloo around the announcement of the Redfern and Waterloo redevelop or the the Waterloo redevelopment and the establishment of what is known as the state significant precinct model mm-hmm. um, utilized by urban growth as the state government's development wing. Um, Urban Growth Corporation, Development Corporation, in and of itself is a private company that is run as the development company for the New South Wales government. Mm. It's essentially a shell Mm. company that um, you cannot file a GIPA request on, you cannot file because it's not a public service. It is, Mm. in and of itself, a private company. Uh, For profit, Uh, potentially to make money. Intentionally, as a business is, to make money mm-hmm. for, who, for, for the government. Non-profits that, for those that don't know, that a lot of Aboriginal organisations fall under. Mm. They are always created to service the community, um, which really, uh, these are the different tiers of industry and organisational structure um, that all of these things kind of can fit into. Exactly. And I think a lot of people just need to be reminded about that, is that Aboriginal community-controlled community, community organisations and the services that were created in the area were for the community and were non-profit status, mm. which meant that they weren't making money. And whatever money they were making was going straight back into the community. 100%. So now we want to talk about... Private... Organisations, corporations, corporations, all and these the, people that are making the money. Exactly, and what we think, what we now understand is the Redfern Waterloo and authority, and how it developed into a set of different mechanisms that now are known as urban growth, or as urban growth looks as it is as a development corporation mm-hmm. that is being run mm-hmm. at the at the the will of the current Labor government mm. to f- aggressively accelerate the redevelopment of spaces like Waterloo, Granville, you know, all over the place. There is now movement before the end of this six term, or this six months for when there's the, the new election. So let's um, really get into state significant sites and what that means and what it looks like. And I believe that there's uh, uh, one other really famous state significant site at the moment um, that's caused a lot of controversy in Sydney was the Barangaroo site. Exactly. So the sort of the what what is almost like a parallel conversation to the Sydney Metro Development Authority is the conversation around the um, Barangaroo the Barangaroo under the Harbour Foreshore Authority and the way that that worked. Now both mm-hmm. of these authorities have been consolidated and operate within urban growth. Mm-hmm. Um, they the 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 development of the state significant site and the state significant significant precincts places a site out of the jurisdiction of the city council to make any sort of claim or any sort of decision about what should and should not be done mm-hmm. um thus rendering what might be sympathetic and 
uh, sympathetic to people and sympathetic to community, like um, one maybe Clover Moore is um, at times, unable to really um, get in the way or object to what is being tabled um, by the state government and mm. what it sees as its incentives to be able mm. to um, forcibly acquire and sell off land for its so- own profit. So we've always recognised um, this community as the black heart of this country. We know the significance and the value of it nationally within an Aboriginal context. These fellows in what year recognised this area as a state significant site, which kind of makes me feel uneasy that their greedy, money-hungry eyes are watching that place that we already know is valuable. Exactly. So it's in 2000, essentially... It's when it's announced in, at the end of 2015, Brad Hazard, as we mentioned before, um, addressed all of the Waterloo housing estate tenants with a personal letter telling them how excited he was that Redfern Waterloo was a, be about to undergo uh, large-scale redevelopment and revitalisation. I'm using air quotes when I say that. Yeah, um, and people on the radio, like listeners don't see us doing this. I've been doing it the whole time we've been talking to. I just find it interesting that in 2015 is when the government recognised... Redfern and Waterloo as state significant. Yeah. When we've been talking about it and we've understood that for a very, very long time. And there's been a community functioning there that has been eroded for 40 years. That community has functioned really strongly and, you know, has actually created so much that everybody else benefits from in Mm. all of these Aboriginal communities. But even across white Australia, within this Industrial Revolution, all this white history that they are up until 2015 wasn't even important to them, Mm. apparently. So... Over these next coming years, we over the, over the, over from about 2016 till now, there's a two-year process in which we, as a community, Redfern and Waterloo, have understood the imminent process, the imminent redevelopment, and the psych- psychic stress of what it means to exist in a space that you know is under attack and un- and has developers' eyes watching. Um, mm-hmm. You, we, as we were talking before, we saw how the Redfern Waterloo Authority was first established to address issues that were related to the way in which the um, the society in and of itself and the the, the community. This is um, what they said anyway. Exactly yeah. established for these goals, and on its consolidation, had not met those goals, but had been developed and changed into something that was much more minded around transport and the development of land. And accessibility to for, to the to this area um, for the rest of the country and this city to exactly. extract wealth from mm. um, you know all these things that we've been talking about just reiterating it back and just bringing it to this this black audit exactly so it comes back now to also projecting what. What is at stake here, and what happens now with the development of the new metro, the new metro site down on Elizabeth mm-hmm. Street, um, or down on um, on on the on Cope Street on across Road. on Botany Road mm-hmm. across the road from the Waterloo Public Housing Estate. This in and of itself is what legitimises the claim mm. to the Waterloo Public mm-hmm. Housing Estate as a state significant precinct mm-hmm. and a site in which it can be um, developed. This was after some time in which the built environment plan that was, you know, this, this is what we're trying to say is that the studies that go forward in developing a case for a metro site are commissioned by a government that understand that it wants to get rid of public housing. 
Um, this is the same site as well that is creating many health problems and we interviewed somebody that actually lives across the road from it in our um, health rats. Episode. And yeah, the rats. The rats It was episode. all about the rats that are coming from that hole in the ground now that is a plague on the rest of the community that no one's talking about either. There's been no PSA still about that. There's, you know, a lot of health problems. Exactly. Um, and that there is this, there was... <laughs> Out of the two sites that were that were nominated for potential development of a metro site, um, one of them being the Sydney Uni site, the other one being Redfern Waterloo. Mm. Um, the one, even though economically the 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 site in in at Sydney Uni made a lot more sense because it had the patronage, mm-hmm. people would use it to get to the university. It meant that people could live further out of the city and still go to UCID, which meant that the UCID and other areas around that didn't have to develop land into student housing. This well, is something actually, that we're seeing. In you can't actually get to Sydney Uni um, unless on a bus, right? That's the only public transport you can actually access Sydney Uni. So mm. it actually makes a lot of sense to do that there. You've also got that huge, all the housing and stuff, the student housing all around there that has also come into this conversation with the, the block um, and the shift of focus from housing Aboriginal families to all of these students. So why not build a train station there for all of this influx of population that's already kind of happening there? You know, we've been talking about, well, you especially have been talking about how all these projected plans are based on how much money they can milk from this area and not actually addressing any of these issues. How much money is going into this metro site right now? And they can't even provide wheelchair access at Redfern Station, which is one of the oldest train stations in the country. This was also this was also a point throughout the establishment of the Redfern Waterloo Authority as the one of the reasons in which it needed to consolidate and sell land was to necessitate and to um, pay for development of the Redfern site, which is only now being addressed. Um, so aren't they was... selling off parts of Everly as well to try and pay for... Exactly. Um, uh, to provide wheelchair access... And to upgrade Redfern train station now after they've already redirected. After they've made a decision to build a metro station not even a kilometre's walk away from the current Redfern station, whereas mm-hmm. you've, to walk from Redfern station to Sydney Uni is a bit further yeah, uh, from the main campus. And, and, and so Not what to ha- mention Green Square on the other side as well. So it's like the shortest, you know. Um, and these Redfern Waterloo are probably the two smallest suburbs in the city as well. They this do not They do not need a train station. In and this conversation opens up a broader discussion mm. that we want to talk about as well as what was what was the undercurrent that was pushing a lot of these built environment plans and the and the decisions being made by the the Sydney Metropolitan Sydney Metropolitan Development Authority was this understanding that the Sydney to Bankstown um, railway corridor needed to be developed to value capture land that was not being used um, economically by what was a liberal-minded, business-minded government. And so this this knocks on. We understand that now that the metro station, which has been disconnected from the Redfern Waterloo, or from the Waterloo housing estate Mm -hmm. development and... Um, but interestingly stri- enough, is driving all of this. Exactly, stuff, it, right? it is. It has been. It has now been fragmented from it. It has been put into a fast lane so that it gets done. But it will be built apparently two years before any um, trains will be running. And see the the logic behind using wow. the the logic behind also the, the 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 way in which they're making the argument is that they've just they've they've 
made a decision that pinpoints that Redfern Waterloo, due to the studies that they paid for, they paid for the Liberal government. Mm, that they, they never consulted with community about on either. No. So they have no idea. That they have that they're going to make a decision that they need a metro station in this area, and then the way that they can finance that is by building new housing in that area to create patronage for the station. Mm. So it's instead of addressing a need that exists, which means addressing a need a need that exists like transport to Sydney Uni, they rather create a station and then build the need around it and mm. develop an uh, an open space the and a mm. space of public housing mm. into private housing and mm. i hope you can understand the kind of very i hope you can see the dispossession that is happening um and the erosion and erasure of a vibrant aboriginal community and a very diverse um, community, um, unfortunately, that has been experimented on and they call it a failed experiment. Anybody who's lived in this community will tell you what has failed is the government and the way that they have treated Aboriginal people and poor people. So this month, we now, after a few months ago, the release of the idea of the plans for the Metro plan being fast-tracked to allow for um, an easy, an easier tran- transgression of transgression, an easier progression of the um, the <laughs> Waterloo redevelopment. We have now, in the last in this last month, had three options presented to the community by the Communities Plus. And now, to for those who are not um, public housing tenants, we would like to describe to you what we understand Communities Plus to be. Communities Plus currently is what the government has made a decision over the last seven years to turn all public housing tenants into a private network where private private communal or social housing providers um, take care of what was once the responsibility of the state. Um, this, again, is the logic of the, le- the neoliberal market, thinking that the market itself will attain and provide the best outcomes. But when you live in a space where the property prices are so exorbitant because of the, the, the speculation that drives this market, you then you find a government depending on the market as opposed to moderating and regulating it. Mm. So we, we are now seeing Communities Plus as the, the, as the housing provider for the new modelled mm. idea of what, being a poor person is well let's not forget that they promised to house everybody that would be relocated those plans have now changed to from 50 50 public private to 70 30 um and these plans are very much like the same plans that the aboriginal housing company um have put out um and you know now they're only housing 62 aboriginal people in amongst uh, you know, up to five hundred to six hundred students. Mm. And so, what that tell, like uh, economically, what that's saying is that Aboriginal lives are not sustainable. Is that you know, pretty much the government believes that Aboriginal housing isn't sustainable because it's not a one public, uh, one private housing sustaining one public housing or Aboriginal housing. It is more like six or seven to run and finance one household, one family. That's further problematising the community, which yeah. is the issue in, a, in an economic sense. What we're seeing is a shift from an actual understanding or a what could have been a racialized and very politicised point of leverage, talking about antisocial behaviour, talking about the stigmatisation of youth. We have now seen a policy directed towards 
actually making Indigenous existence in these communities economically unreasonable and unviable from anyone looking to build, anyone looking to provide housing. We're seeing a divestment from welfare across the board, but the worst in New South Wales. And they've, they've, they've literally sold, sold any kind of future that our children can have um, by doing all of that. They're making, they're making the already the barriers that our kids have to overcome to get to the ages that we're at even harder and even more barriers and making that disadvantage, that gap even more wider, um, right on the front line of invasion, um, you know, where it's all started. Um, and Redfern, again, has always been a stronghold. We look, at, we look at audits in order to find fraudulent activity. We've just found 14 years of fraudulent activity because none of this is actually set out to address the issues that they started out, what they were established to do, which was provide some kind of, some kind of sustainability to the community and try to address the problems that, you know, um, were happening, but it's always from a colonial white gaze and it's never ever actually asking us what we need. You know, there still hasn't quite been a community consultation process. The, they say that there was one in 2006, but a consultation process should be, starting bef- should be happening before plans are drawn up. And this is kind of what it becomes apparent, is that they are not worried, they don't care what we think about our community or how we value or even our lives or even keeping Aboriginal people there. They're asking us what is our favourite option out of three options that have never considered us. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. How much money are they set to make? What is this looking like? I think when you when you think about the sheer scale of what is now looking to be redeveloped in the Redfern and Waterloo area, we have the block being turned over to a large investment from private student housing providers building a 26-storey tall building on the railway corridor, thus blocking a lot of sunlight. this is an organisation that is supposed to be housing Aboriginal people and, um, you know, have actually deterred and um, diverted from, from that plan. So, you know, they're more acting like a real estate agent for another marginalised group of people, which are students, um, you know, who often live off, live a very uh, meagre lifestyle. I remember I was living off 80 cent falafels and like um, $2 noodles and stuff mm. when I was at uni. So um, when you look at the sheer scale of um, <laughs> the land of Redfern and um, in the sheer scale of the land of the Waterloo housing estate, as a development, they're looking to increase the population of that area in terms of dwellings by up to... 4,800 4, nah, 4, new dwellings on the existing site. That comes to a total including public housing of 7,200 dwellings. That's not people. That's that's apartments. If you take the medium, if you take the median rent for a single bedroom apartment in the city right now, or the, the median price of a single bedroom apartment, these are not built to rent. These establishments. These are built to be sold, to be invested Mm. in. This Mm. is the operation of the market that we currently exist in. We have a government that's depending on the speculation of property. We have an increase of 4,800 houses. And if you times 4,800 by what is the median apartment price in Sydney, in Waterloo, which is 821 
hundred thousand dollars, we see that the developer of this land and is looking to make upwards of three billion dollars. We have an exact figure, and I'm not an accountant. We're not here. Can you just say that again? That that number, and how many zeros that is. <laughs> so testing the three options that are offered by the communities plus um, this month, their highest density option is that with 7,200 um, dwellings on the site. If you use kind of simplistic math to de- to to figure out that well. Probably two-thirds of that site would be at market value. That's 4,800 dwellings sold at $821,000 each. That is the median price of of a single-bedroom apartment in Waterloo right now. The results of selling off each each one of those apartments in total would be $3,940,800,000. And that's a densest option. If you know, you know, even if they're even if they're thinking about, oh, maybe maybe that high density is too much, and we'll go for the option one, which is the lowest density, which is with sixty five hundred dwellings. Which you know, if you divide that, you've got four 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 thousand three hundred and thirty three private dwellings. Even that comes to a total of three billion five hundred and fifty seven million six hundred and sixty six thousand dollars. So while our people continue to starve and while they get treated like shit and over-policed in our community, while we continue to be dispossessed, this is how much money these people are set to make. This is how much value is invested in this new wave of gentrification. This is really what it's all about because it's not about antisocial behaviour, is it? So I just kind of wanted to bring it back um, and I've just written some note, you know, because it's 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 really full on, um, and I and I really hope that you know people really take into this account and even write that sum down because it doesn't add on to the projected earnings that um, Aboriginal housing company are set to make, um, you know, with their plans i remember my guesstimations um at the couple of months ago were somewhere like they are said to earn eight million a year just out of rent accrued eight million even in their plans should be invested into those 62 aboriginal houses they should be some state of the art fucking speak as motherfucking houses that you know <laughs> Which, where, where's our million dollars each? How much money these people are profiting? And in the 14 years of being an area of state interest justified by the death of TJ Hickey under the promise of addressing social disadvantage and antisocial behaviour with the establishment of the Redfern Waterloo Authority and their quiet demise and the government acquisition and sell-off mentality over the last seven years since, How much of those hundreds of millions of dollars that the government have invested in this already failed social experiment by the same government back in the 60s and 70s? How how much has been invested in community healing or ensuring the continuity and sustainability and hopeful regeneration of the once vibrant Aboriginal community that once had a population of 35,000 and are now down to 300 as of the last census? 
the birthplace of Aboriginal self-determination as we know it, the black heart of this country, only to arrive at the same situation with the death of Patrick Fisher in 2018. How much money has been spent on any kind of community healing or death in custody trauma training? Any kind of, you know, we have to fundraise to bury our people in our own land that was stolen from us. Um, this is what it's really about and this is what it really comes down to. Um, we really need to be given the keys to this. We really need to be centralised in this because if we're not, it's kind of just finalising the original genocidal plans of 1788. Let us show what we, the survivors of this new wave of colonisation called gentrification can do for our own community instead of giving the land you stole from our ancestors and massacred our people across this country for away to private developers, wealthy non-Aboriginal people that have no expertise in community cohesion or even our community itself, the history, the demographics, what, what makes our community so special. All the promise of further experimenting on our lives with a built-to-rent scheme. Wasn't 230 years of genocide enough experimenting for you? How long is our community going to stay silent? How long is our community going to continue to starve while these people grow fat off our trauma? If you get rid of the Aboriginal community of Redfern Waterloo who have built their lives here after 230 years of dispossession, those genocidal plans have been completed, ultimately killing the black heart of this country. And if a black, if the heart stops beating, then it's ultimately signed your death certificate. There is no future without Aboriginal people, without Aboriginal women, without Aboriginal youth. And they have all been attacked and stigmatised in this plan. You've been listening to Radio Skid Row. This is Survival Guide. That's it for us. We're going to cut to a track. We're going to let you sit on that for a little bit. And we'll be back after this to talk about some other stuff and close off for the hour. Keep it locked. Listening to Joel and Lorna on Survival Guide for the past two hours on this wonderful Friday. It's warming up. Mm. Um, we ended that 
on a really strong note and we hope that you sit with that. We've just mm-hmm. got a few more things for you to think about before we close off for the episode. Yeah. We've been covering a history from 2004 to today and I think it's important to go back to that, that first year and think about 2004, 2005 and what was happening in Australia at that, at that time. Mm-hmm. It was not just the tragic death in pursuit of, T- of young TJ Hickey but also... And response um, that they call a riot... Um, but there was a specific focus, focused attention on public order and policing and multicultural issues in New South Wales by government. Um, and Redfern was one of those identified areas. So was M- Macquarie Fields and Cronulla. After those infamous Cronulla riots started out with a text message, ended up looking like um, a neo-Nazi rally with the Union Jack the Union Jack has been, you know, Australian flag has been weaponized and used against Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people, um, non-white, non-Aboriginal people, um, migrant communities to instill fear. It's become a colonial tool. It's become a symbol of whiteness in this country and appropriation of our cultural creation stories as well with that Southern Cross. Um, but I just wanted to mention that, you know, in amongst all this focused area in the last 14 years, um, Cronulla has never been gentrified. Cronulla hasn't been gentrified. Um, the racist behaviours that became apparent and that was disgusted, everybody was disgusted, the rest of this country, the rest of the world that heard about it was disgusted with the behaviours that were displayed there and the aggressive, violent behaviour and the racial attacks on anybody on that beach that wasn't white that day. And this is the same places that their descendants invaded and murdered brown people on. You know, let's not forget this. And these are the kind of things that we think about when we see that Union Jack that was weaponized against us on that day back in Cronulla. Since then, there's been no plans about displacing any kind of community there. They have not even addressed the racism that stirred um, and became evident as actually been encouraged to grow Um, you know, and we give neo-Nazis platforms in this country with uh, mainstream media, um, you know. And I think on that note, it's important to always be thanking the people that are giving us a platform after being silenced for so long. Thank you to Radio Skid Row for this show, for all of the things that have have been happening. Um, 107 for um, letting us take up space um, letting us reclaim some kind of space in order to hold discussions. And we had a community discussion last night. We're going to be airing that episode, which is our final episode for our series, for the Survival Guide 2018. We're going to be talking to more tenants um, next week. Stay tuned for that. It's another important episode, um, and it's our last um, and we're going to go out with a bang. And, you know, I just wanted to mention again um, how important how important it is to stay strong and to keep connected and to keep talking about these things and to keep informing each other because we can't rely on this government to do it properly. Also today, you know, we've been playing a lot of music about money. We've been playing a lot of Aretha Franklin um, who, you know, unfortunately passed away the other, uh, yesterday, I think it was. Um, and I just wanted to mention also, um, the loss of a, 
strong black woman in this community. Um, today we lay Ani Faye Carroll to rest and I just wanted to play a song for her that had been asked for my mum just to play. Um, so we're just going to go out on that note and just thank you guys for always listening and being open to learning and engaging in conversation. You know, whenever you follow, see us, whenever any of our listeners see us um, at these and see us doing the groundwork that we have been doing in order to form these shows, this show. Um, big thank you to Hannah. Big thank you to Community Broadcasting. Big thank you to... Oh. Sydney Uni. A uh, big um, thank you to Joel for doing all the, the labour and um, putting on the, the accountant hat today because I fucking could never, you know, do that sort of stuff. And thank you for your amazing words and your amazing insight. Um, we couldn't, you know, we've realised what it means to be able to be a part of something. Um, we hope that you've really enjoyed listening and learning with us. We're trying our best to share with you what we understand is going on in this shit fight and what we can all be better at doing and better at acknowledging together in how to deal with this ongoing tactics of colonization in Australia. That's it. And to the next 20 years of our survival, stay black, stay deadly, stay staunch, stay educated and knowledgeable about what's going on around you because that's what's up. I think that's us. You've been locked onto Skid Row for the last two hours. Have a good weekend. We'll see you next week for our last instalment.
Adios, Adios.